Section 3 of One Day's Courtship and the Heralds of Fame by Robert Barr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Nat Spratt. Chapter 3 of One Day's Courtship. When John Tritton came in to breakfast, he found his friend Mason waiting for him. That genial gentleman was evidently ill at ease, but he said in an offhand way, The ladies have already breakfasted. They are busily engaged in the preparations for the trip, and so you and I can have a snack together, and then we will go and see to the canoe. After breakfast, they went together to the river, and found the canoe and the two half-breeds waiting for them. A couple of rugs were spread on the bottom of the canoe, rising over the two slanting boards, which served as backs to the lowly seats. Now, said Mason with a blush, for he always told a necessary lie with some compunction, I shall have to go and see to one of my men who was injured in the mill this morning. You had better take your place in the canoe and wait for your passenger, who, as is usual with ladies, will probably be a little late. I think you should sit in the back seat, as you are the heavier of the two. I presume you remember what I told you about sitting in a canoe. Get in with caution while these two men hold the side of it. Sit down carefully and keep steady no matter what happens. Perhaps you may as well put your camera here at the back or in the prow. No, said Trenton. I shall keep it slung over my shoulder. It isn't heavy, and I am always afraid of forgetting it if I leave it anywhere. Trenton got cautiously into the canoe, while Mason bustled off with a very guilty feeling at his heart. He never thought of blaming Miss Summerton for the course she had taken, and the dilemma into which she placed him, for he felt that the fault was entirely his own. John Trenton pulled out his pipe and absent-mindedly stuffed it full of tobacco. Just as he was about to light it, he remembered there was to be a lady in the party, and so with a grimace of disappointment he put the loaded pipe into his pocket again. It was the most lovely time of the year. The sun was still warm, but the dreaded black fly and other insect pests of the region had disappeared before the sharp frost that occurred every night. The hilly banks of the St. Maurice were covered with unbroken forest, and the woods of autumn all around the vale had put their glory on. Presently, Trenton saw Miss Summerton, accompanied by old Mrs. Perrault, coming over the brow of the hill. He attempted to rise, in order to assist the lady to a seat in the canoe, when the half-breed said in French, "'Better sit still. It is safer. We will help the lady.' Miss Summerton was talking rapidly in French, with rather overdone eagerness to Mrs. Perrault. She took no notice of her fellow voyager, as she lightly stepped exactly in the center of the canoe, and sank down on the rug in front of him, with the ease of one thoroughly accustomed to that somewhat treacherous craft. The two stalwart boatmen, one at the prow, the other at the stern of the canoe, with swift and dexterous strokes, shot it out into the stream. Trenton could not but admire the knowledge of these two men and their dexterous use of it. Here they were on a swiftly flowing river, with a small fall behind them, and a tremendous cataract several miles in front. Yet these two men, by their knowledge of the currents, managed to work their way upstream with the least possible amount of physical exertion. The St. Maurice, at this point, is about half a mile wide, with an island here and there, and now and then a touch of rapids. Sometimes the men would dash right across the river to the opposite bank, and there fall in with a miniature gulf stream that would carry them onward without exertion. Sometimes they were near the densely wooded shore, sometimes in the center of the river. The half-breed who stood behind Trenton leant over to him and whispered, "'You can now smoke if you like. The wind is downstream.' Naturally, Trenton wished to smoke. 
The requesting of permission to do so, it struck him, might open the way to conversation. He was not an ardent conversationalist, but it seemed to him rather ridiculous that two persons should thus travel together in a canoe without saying a word to each other. "'I beg your pardon, madam,' he began, "'but would you have any objection to my smoking? I am ashamed to confess that I am a slave to the pernicious habit.' There was a moment or two of silence, broken only by the regular dip of the paddle. Then Miss Summerton said, "'If you wish to desecrate this lovely spot by smoking, I presume anything I can say will not prevent you.' Trenton was amazed at the rudeness of this reply, and his face flushed with anger. Finally, he said, "'You must have a very poor opinion of me.' Miss Summerton answered tartly, "'I have no opinion whatever of you.' Then, with womanly inconsistency, she proceeded to deliver her opinion, saying, a man who would smoke here would smoke in a cathedral. "'I think you are wrong there,' said Mr. Trenton calmly. "'I would smoke here, but I would not think of smoking in a cathedral. Neither would I smoke in the humblest log cabin chapel.' "'Sir,' said Miss Summerton, turning partly round, "'I came to the St. Maurice for the purpose of viewing its scenery. I hope to see it alone. I have been disappointed in that, but I must insist on seeing it in silence. I do not wish to carry on a conversation.' nor do I wish to enter into a discussion on any subject whatever. I am sorry to have to say this, but it seems to be necessary. Her remarks so astonished Trenton that he found it impossible to get angrier than he had been when she first spoke. In fact, he found his anger receding rather than augmenting. It was something so entirely new to meet a lady who had such an utter disregard for the rules of politeness that obtain in any civilized society that Mr. Trenton felt he was having a unique and valuable experience. "'Will you pardon me?' he said, with apparent submissiveness. "'Will you pardon me if I disregard your request sufficiently to humbly beg forgiveness for having spoken to you in the first place?' To this, Miss Summerton made no reply, and the canoe glided along. After going up the river for a few miles, the boatmen came to a difficult part of the voyage. Here the river was divided by an island— the dark waters moved with great swiftness, and with the smoothness of oil over the concealed rocks, breaking into foam at the foot of the rapids. Now, for the first time, the Indians had hard work. For quite half an hour they paddled as if in despair, and the canoe moved upward inch by inch. It was not only hard work, but it was work that did not allow of a moment's rest until it was finished. Should the paddles pause but an instant, the canoe would be swept to the bottom of the rapids. When at last the craft floated into the still water above the rapids, the boatmen rested and mopped the perspiration from their brows. Then, without a word, they resumed their steady, easy swing of the paddle. In a short time, the canoe drew up at a landing, from which a path ascended the steep hill among the trees. The silence was broken only by the deep, distant, low roar of the Shawinigan Falls. Mr. Trenton sat in his place while the half-breeds held the canoe steady. Miss Summerton rose and stepped with firm, self-reliant tread on the landing. Without looking backward, she proceeded up the steep hill and disappeared among the dense foliage. Then Trenton leisurely got out of the canoe. "'You had a hard time of it up that rapid,' said the artist in French to the boatman. "'Here is a five-dollar bill to divide when you get down, and if you bring us safely back, I shall have another ready for you.' The men were profusely grateful, as indeed they had a right to be, for the most they expected was a dollar each as a fee. "'Ah,' said the elder, "'if we had gentlemen like you to take up every day,' and he gave an expressive shrug. 
"'You shouldn't take such a sordid view of the matter,' said the artist. "'I should think you would find great pleasure in taking up parties of handsome ladies, such as I understand, now and then visit the falls.' "'Ah,' said the boatman, "'it is very nice, of course, but except from Miss Summerton, we don't get much.' Really, said the artist, and who is Miss Summerton, pray? The half-breed nodded up the path. Oh, indeed, that is her name. I did not know. Yes, said the man. She is very generous, and she always brings us tobacco in her pocket. Good tobacco. Tobacco, cried the artist. The errant hypocrite. She gives you tobacco, does she? Did you understand what we were talking about coming up here? The younger half-breed was about to say, yes, and a gleam of intelligence came into his face. But a frown on the other's brow checked him, and the elder gravely shook his head. "'We do not understand English,' he said. As Trenton walked slowly up the steep hillside, he said to himself, "'That young woman does not seem to have the slightest spark of gratitude in her composition. Here I have been good-natured enough to share my canoe with her, yet she treats me as if I were some low ruffian instead of a gentleman.' As Miss Summerton was approaching the Shawanagan Falls, she said to herself, what an insufferable cad that man is! Mr. Mason doubtless told him that he was indebted to me for being allowed to come in the canoe, and yet, although he must see I do not wish to talk with him, he tried to force conversation on me. Miss Summerton walked rapidly along the very imperfect woodland path, which was completely shaded by the overhanging trees. After a walk of nearly a mile, the path suddenly ended at the top of a tremendous precipice of granite, and opposite this point the great hillside of tumbling white foam plunged forever downward. At the foot of the falls, the waters flung themselves against the massive granite barrier, and then, turning at a right angle, plunged downward in a series of wild rapids that completely eclipsed in picturesqueness and grandeur and force even the famous rapids at Niagara. Contemplating this incomparable scene, Miss Summerton forgot all about her objectionable traveling companion. She sat down on a fallen log, placing her sketchbook on her lap, but it lay there idly as, unconscious of the passing time, she gazed dreamily at the great falls and listened to their vibrating, deafening roar. Suddenly, the consciousness of someone near startled her from her reverie. She sprang to her feet and had so completely forgotten her companion that she stared at him for a moment in dumb amazement. He stood back some distance from her, and beside him on its slender tripod was placed a natty little camera. Connected with the instantaneous shutter was a long black rubber tube, almost as thin as a string. The bulb of this instantaneous attachment Mr. Trenton held in his hand, and the instant Miss Summerton turned around, the little shutter, as if in defiance of her, gave a snap and she knew her picture had been taken, and also that she was the principal object in the foreground. "'You have photographed me, sir!' cried the young woman, with her eyes blazing. "'I have photographed the falls, or at least I hope I have,' replied Trenton. "'But my picture is in the foreground. You must destroy that plate.' "'You will excuse me, Miss Summerton, if I tell you I shall do nothing of the kind. It is very unusual, with me, to deny the request of a lady. But in this case I must do so.' This is the last plate I have, and it may be the one successful picture of the lot. I shall, therefore, not destroy the plate. Then, sir, you are not a gentleman, cried the impetuous young lady, her face aflame with anger. I never claim to be one, answered Trenton calmly. I shall appeal to Mr. Mason. Perhaps he has some means of making you understand that you are not allowed to take a lady's photograph without her permission, and in defiance of her wishes. 
Will you allow me to explain why it is unnecessary to destroy the plate? If you understand anything about photography, you must be aware of the fact. I am happy to say I know nothing of photography, and I desire to know nothing of it. I will not hear any explanation from you, sir. You have refused to destroy the plate. That is enough for me. Your conduct today has been entirely contemptible. In the first place, you have forced yourself, through Mr. Mason, into my company. The canoe was mine for today, and you knew it. I granted you permission to come, but I made it a proviso that there should be no conversation. Now I shall return in the canoe alone, and I shall pay the boatman to come back for you this evening. With this, she swept indignantly past Mr. Trenton, leaving the unfortunate man, for the second or third time that day, too much dumbfounded to reply. She marched down the path toward the landing. Arriving at the canoe, she told the boatmen they would have to return for Mr. Trenton, that she was going back alone and she would pay them handsomely for their extra trip. Even the additional pay offered did not seem to quite satisfy the two half-breeds. "'It will be nearly dark before we can get back,' grumbled the elder boatman. "'That does not matter,' replied Miss Summerton shortly. "'But it is dangerous going down the river at night.' "'That does not matter,' was again the reply. "'But he has nothing.' The longer you stand talking here, the longer it will be before you get back. If you are afraid for the safety of the gentleman, pray stay here with him and give me the paddle. I will take the boat down alone. The boatman said nothing more, but shot the canoe out from the landing and proceeded rapidly down the stream. Miss Summerton meditated bitterly on the disappointments and annoyances of the day. Once fairly away, conscience began to trouble her and she remembered that the gentleman, so unceremoniously left in the woods without any possibility of getting away, was a man whom Mr. Mason, her friend, evidently desired very much to please. Little had been said by the boatmen. Merely a brief word of command, now and then, from the elder who stood in the stern, until they passed down the rapids. Then Miss Summerton caught a grumbling word in French, which made her heart stand still. "'What is it that you said?' she cried to the elder boatman. He did not answer, but solemnly paddled onward. "'Answer me,' demanded Miss Summerton. "'What is that you said about the gentleman who went up with us this morning?' "'I said,' replied the half-breed, with a grim severity that even the remembrance of gifts of tobacco could not mitigate, "'that the canoe belonged to him today.' "'How dare you say such a thing? The canoe was mine. Mr. Mason gave it to me. It was mine for today.' "'I know nothing about that,' returned the boatman doggedly. But I do know that three days ago, Mr. Mason came to me with this gentleman's letter in his hand and said, Pierre, Mr. Trenton is to have the canoe for Tuesday. See, it is in good order, and no one else is to have it for that day. That is what Mr. Mason said. And when they were down at the canoe this morning, Mr. Mason asked Mr. Trenton if he would let you go up to the falls in his canoe, and he said yes. Miss Summerton sat there too horrified to speak. A wild resentment against the duplicity of Ed Mason arose for a moment in her heart, but it speedily sank as she viewed her own conduct in the light of this astounding revelation. She had abused an unknown gentleman like a pickpocket, and had finally gone off with his canoe, leaving him marooned, as it were, to whose courtesy she was indebted for being there at all. Overcome by the thoughts that crowded so quickly upon her, she buried her face in her hands and wept. But this was only for an instant. Raising her head again, with the imperious air characteristic of her, she said to the boatman, "'Turn back at once, please.' "'We are almost there now,' he answered, amazed at the feminine inconsistency of the command. "'Turn back at once, I say. You are not too tired to paddle up the river again, are you?' "'No, madam,' he answered. 
but it is so useless. We are almost there. We shall land you, and then the canoe will go up lighter. I wish to go with you. Do what I tell you, and I will pay you. The stolid boatman gave the command. The man at the bow paddled one way, while the man at the stern paddled another, and the canoe swung round upstream again. End of chapter 3